Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. All right, good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Welcome to the Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr, usually along with Mr. Chris Davey, but he is on vacation on the East Coast, and he will be traveling towards me in Arizona starting tomorrow morning, and hopefully we'll meet up uh, Monday or Tuesday, and I hope he has a, uh, a safe drive. I know he's been stuck in Florida for the last couple of days because of the hurricane, and coming across the 10 freeway there, the, a lot of it's flooded and closed. No electricity, so if he runs out of gas, he's stuck. So he stayed in Florida until uh, tomorrow morning, and uh, hopefully you'll have a safe safe drive out here. And uh, then once he's here for a couple of days, he will head back to our office in California. So wish him the best. Um, just to let everybody know, it's coming up this year again in December that the 2021 Irrigation Show and Education Week kicks off in San Diego, California, on December 6th. And all attendees have week-long access to the invaluable education content, networking, a great exhibit hall with all kinds of exhibitors in the irrigation and lighting industry. Uh, they know and love from years to past that uh, you're, you're going to love the show, plus some exciting new additions. And to register and to see more about that, go to irrigationshow.org. That's irrigationshow.org before November 1st. And secure an early bird rate. There's a lot of education classes so anybody in the irrigation or water business, it's a, it's a good place to go. A lot of, in fact, most of the major water agencies in the country uh, will be there, as well as uh, contractors and, and manufacturers. So you get to see new technologies, learn about what they're all doing to help uh, use water more efficiently and some of the new products that are out. So uh, please go, uh, go to the irrigationshow.org and uh, check it out on the web. And if you want to sign up, please do. Uh, you can get uh, continuing education units. You can get certified to be a, uh, a water auditor, auditor, a water manager, and all kinds of uh, different classes. They have a library there that you can utilize and buy uh, products and uh, books from uh, uh, that you can't find anywhere else. And um, it's a good place to uh, bolster your, your job experience or if you're just a DIYer, uh, homeowner, and you want to know more about that industry and more about fixing things and how to make it work, how to design them and, and put in a nice irrigation and lighting systems, whatever, you got to go to this uh, this thing. So anyway, that's uh, irrigationshow.org. Um, anyway, I've been reading, we're going to bring on Ms. Chris Austin in a second. Um, in fact, I'll bring her in now. Ms. Chris Austin is the, the, the uh, I'm sorry, my things are beeping all over here because Chris isn't here. They want to know where he is. Um, uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of things happening in water in California, and she is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook. So, Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Rob? Good. Hey, I, I wanted your take on some of the things. I, I've been listening to the, the water news and reading your stuff, which I get every single day, which is important. But I, I noticed that the Bureau of Reclamation recently announced uh, a first-year water shortage declaration for Lake Mead and the lower Colorado River Basin. I know you and I talked about that before. And the Bureau released the Colorado River August 2021, they did a 21, uh, sorry, 24-month study. And this month's study projections are used to set annual operations for Lake Powell and Lake Mead in 2022. And releases from these massive reservoirs are determined by anticipated reservoir elevations. 
And the projected water year for 2021 unregulated inflow into Lake Powell, Powell the amount that would have bowed, uh, flowed to Lake Mead without the benefit of storage behind Glen Canyon Dam, it's down to 32% of average. So the total Colorado River system storage today is 40% of capacity, down from 49% of the last year. And, and as a result of this historic drought and low runoff conditions in, in, in the Colorado River Basin, the Bureau announced that downstream releases from Glen Canyon Dam and Hoover Dam will be reduced again in 2022 due to declining reservoir levels. Uh, it's getting really scary. These mandatory cutbacks will bring challenges, obviously, to Arizona farmers and reduce water allotments for Nevada and Mexico in, in, in the coming years. So like most of the West, they had a person they talked to named Tanya Trujillo, and um, the Colorado River is facing unprecedented and accelerating challenges. And she's the Assistant Secretary for Water and Science. And her statement is, the only way to address these challenges and climate change is to utilize the best available science and to work cooperatively across the landscape and communities that rely on the Colorado River. So it's not just California that's going to see and experience a drought. It's, it's other places, too. And that, that fits into what hopefully we're going to talk about tonight and what's in the, the latest and greatest of, of, of water news. And uh, kind of like this, I read about you published uh, increased pumping in Central Valley during the drought. It worsens groundwater conditions and the quality. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Service Survey, excuse me, um, they, they do testing of groundwater conditions throughout the state. And, you know, what, what they found, and it's not really a, it's not a surprise to people who are familiar with this, with this sort of thing, but as you draw down the, the aquifers, the, the groundwater, the quality of that water is not as, it's not as good. The lower you go, there's more minerals, there's more stuff um, in the water, and you know, there's already a bunch of junk in the water there that comes from, you know, that's come from farming operations that have been over the aquifer for 150 years. So there's already stuff in it. But there's also, they found um, in, in a study a few years ago that when, when you drop the aquifers down, especially in the Central Valley, and they compact, and, and you get land subsidence. They also raise the amount of arsenic in the water because it like gets squeezed out of the sediment, and when the sediments collapse or the clay, it's clay. It collapses, and and you get you you get more arsenic in in it. Now, you know there are a, a lot of contaminants in the Central Valley water that did come from agricultural operations over 150 years, but there's also a lot of naturally occurring uh, contaminants. And arsenic is, is just, it occur, it's in the soil naturally. The, the farmers did not do anything to put it there. It's there. And so, you know, there's a, a lot of things that come out of uh, when you start pumping, you know, these aquifers lower and lower and lower. Um, so it's not really not really shocking, but um, important to you know for people to be aware of. Um, yeah, and you know, going back to the uh, to the Colorado River drought, what's what's interesting? What you were talking about with that is um, actually on the Colorado River, California 
is not going to be taking any cut yet because of this nice way that it works out in Western water where it's first in time, first in right. So California's water rights on the Colorado River are actually senior to Arizona and Nevada, and so California will not take a hit yet. Uh, So it's not reducing our water from the Colorado River, but we've got this massive drought here in Northern California that feeds uh, into Southern California. And so, California, you know, we have our own drought to contend with. And as if the situation does not improve on the Colorado River, uh, it cuts will come to California, but we're not in the first round. Uh, what's really tough is uh, Nevada gets a very small amount of water uh, for Las Vegas from the Colorado River, like uh, 200,000 acre-feet or 300,000 acre-feet, which is like nothing. Um, it's about like like or- Lake Oroville is three, I think it's 3.85. So it's a, it might be like... Uh, Half to two-thirds of, of Oroville, that's all the water that they get uh, for Las Vegas. So um, a, a cut to Nevada is, is, you know, it's hard for them. But, but Las Vegas has been really progressive in their uh, water conservation. Uh, you know, they're, they really push on their residents. They've, they actually got a new law passed in Nevada to not uh, any ornamental turf or ornamental grass that's not being used uh, has to be removed. Yep. Um, you know, so they're they're very progressive on that. Um, and, you know, but they're in a tough position, uh, as is Arizona. And really, you know, the problem is, uh, like you were talking about. I mean, it's it's. It's going to affect, it already is in a sense, affecting all the seven states that share the Colorado River. Um, it's starting, these cuts are focused on the lower uh, the lower Colorado River states, but the upper basin has their challenges too. Actually, I do believe Colorado, see, when, when they did the, the, when they divvied up the Colorado River, which they did back in 1922, uh, they they decided that the average volume of the river was 15 million acre feet, and so they just drew a line at Lee's Ferry, which I think is sort of a, a, a point on the Colorado River between like Utah and Arizona. I think it's somewhere there. They drew a line and they said, "Okay, you upper basin states have to deliver," you know. You have 7.5 million acre feet of water, and you have to deliver 7.5 or some amount to Lee's Ferry every year. So this year, in order to make that delivery of water that the upper basin states have to make to the lower basin states, they actually had to release water out of a reservoir in Colorado. I do believe that was the first time uh, that they've had to do that. So the upper basin states had to give up water to make their commitment to this compact. So 
you know, it's uh, it's it's going to be hard on the Colorado River, definitely. You know, this drought thing. Rob. Hello. Hello. Oh, we're we're back. You got us. Hello, I hear you. Oh, okay. You had a little technical issue there. Something went haywire. Anyway, we're back on. Uh, yeah, we had Bronson Mack on from uh, Southern Nevada Water Authority a couple weeks ago, talking about the, the new law about uh, non-usable, you know, non-use turf, and they're going to give people warnings and start this process, I guess, in October, November, uh, to go around and, and start giving fines out. And and uh... you know, I and I I I really agree with the concept. I mean, I'm not going to weigh on, on in on the fines or the legal right. legislation, but really, you know, if you have if you have a piece of grass and nobody's feet ever touches it except to mow it, then you probably don't need to have grass there. <laughs> you know, no. It can be something else, and that something else doesn't have to be rocks and cactus. There are uh, there are all sorts of things that you can use that you know won't cut won't use any water or low water and it'll be quite lovely you know yeah. well there's a, there's there's some you know, we had mentioned over over the last couple of years we've had some uh people in from uh turf uh seed developers where there is uh different types of uh, turf that you can get that's extremely low uh it only needs to water every every couple of weeks and and you don't need to mow it every 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 week either so and, and 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 there's lots of pluses for having turf as well. Like again, from keeping down pollutants, uh, keeping the temperature down. I mean, I can go on and on and on. But you know, you got you got to use water efficiently because that's that's what's happening right now. And and, and if you don't, we're going to run out of it. So we got to we got to come up with ideas and, and ways to, to do all those things. Um, and I do believe you know if you have a if you have a dog, if you have kids, and you have a yard, and you want to use your yard, you want to enjoy your yard. I I think you should put you know it that's a, that's the a use of water that is you know it's useful. But if yeah. if it's just you know a patch of green to look pretty that no one ever will you know ever touch except to yeah. mow it, then it doesn't need to be there. I I agree. I I think all street mediums should be artificial turf or something different. Uh, because people don't walk on them, uh, maybe unless they cross the street. Usually, when they have turf, they have other things around it, so you really don't walk on it. But yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's places for it, and 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 and, and there's just as many reasons to take regular turf out as there is not to use uh, artificial turf because of things where it can create mold and mildew and create cancer. I mean, it, it goes both sides. So, uh, but people got th- people got to think about that uh, realistically. I, I know that um, not, not talk a whole bunch about, about politics in this thing, but the the drought stricken farmers uh, could be critical in in this Newsom recall. The governor uh, who's who's up for a recall and reelection, and, yeah, and uh, I, I know, know they're not happy. Tell us a little about what you know on that. <laughs> well, I, actually, it's it's kind of unique, you know. Uh, for you listeners now can know the thing I haven't really talked a whole lot about. I'm not going to mention on my blog, but I'll tell you here. I moved from uh, Southern California up to Northern California. And uh, now, you know, Southern California, predominantly urban. Northern California, where I live, is predominantly agriculture. And, you know, driving up here, 
there are signs all over. Recall Newsom. Recall Newsom. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, farmers in general, not a hundred percent, but in general, tend to be Republican, tend to be conservative, and you know the the water restrictions. Uh, you know, there's there there's a lot of Republican blame being heaped on Newsom right now because the reservoirs have been drained, as they say. And mm-hmm. and I got to say that the reservoirs are lower than I can ever recall them ever being. And in fact, they stopped producing power at Lake Oroville, um, and that's never happened before. The thing is that back about two years ago, uh, the Trump administration rewrote the water rules, and they 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 were lawsuits and arguments over it. And when the Biden administration come in, they did not reverse those water rules. They are reviewing them. Um, and so what that means is that the rules in which the reservoirs got drained were actually the Trump administration rules because they haven't. The Biden administration has not addressed them. So it's a it's a very unique thing. But I suppose. You know, it, it's working for those people who are using, saying it. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, the the whole this whole recall. I mean, we're just going to have to see how it goes. It's such a, a wild card, and what what it could mean for water policy. Um, I mean, it's just it's I, I can't even hazard to guess. And with forty two candidates. I I don't know who's who who's could it possibly be I don't know Larry Elder and John Cox seem to be the most uh I see the most ads for them but I you know I do not I don't know how it's going to go Newsom raised tons of money but you know people are looking at different I'm not I'm not here to support one or anybody else I mean that's not my job here but what's interesting is you know, California. If if Elder goes, he's he's leading on the the challenger side by I think about 15, almost fifteen points. He would be the first black governor in in California history, which would be unique <laughs> uh, to that. Um, but you know, like you said, it's going to be interesting because the farmers are going to have a lot to say about this and others. And uh, you know, I read statistics about how many people are moving out of California and are are you know. Uh, disassociating themselves with the politics there. Uh, I I, I won't get any more deep into that because that's not what the show's about, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in, 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 uh, you know, was it September 15th? I think, is that uh, the date of the recall? Yeah, September 14th. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. uh, (laughs) Cause you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, and, and what it could mean is it, it, I mean, I can't, I couldn't even hazard to guess. No, but I, I, you know, when you mentioned when you were driving up, you saw signs when the, the drought hit a couple of years ago and I was going up north uh, to the state fairs when we were doing some exhibits up there. I saw all these recall signs for Brown and everything else. I mean, it was bad. It's it like every mile yeah. they had big gigantic billboards and it was just, just a nasty thing. Well, one, one, one other thing that you, you, you had posted, which really kind of got my, thinking about different things. And it was from the California Fish and Wildlife Group where they want to do a cannabis restoration grant program and they're looking for concept proposals. 
So I, I guess I guess for me, I'm not into that stuff, but I don't. I, I understand from what I see and read that a lot of cannabis can be used for medical things. And, I, and, and if it is for those purposes, I have no problem about that. But giving giving grant money out for people to make this stuff so people can go get high, I, I don't know if I want my well, I'm not in California anymore to you know to pay the tax on that. But if I was still living there, I would I would have a little problem about giving my money to a bunch of guys consistently because we we had talked last week um, about how many illegal growers of cannabis there is in California and just that one county there was thousands not counting the whole state and and we can't even control the state can't control that all the illegal growers now they want to pay money just just like i also read uh i guess there's a thing in san francisco that they want to give out money to gangs not to shoot people <laughs> did, did you read that <laughs> i mean I, I, think some these, I think some of these laws are getting to be really ridiculous where tax money is being spent when we really need fixing infrastructure and how, how do we Get more storage, you know, storage for water and things like that. I just find it really kind of odd that the Fish and Wildlife are talking about looking for concept proposals so they can give grant money out for cannabis growers. But that's yeah, I'm kind of I'm running to look at this thing uh, because uh, and trying to see exactly what they're doing, uh, what they're applying for. Let's see, because um, I'm sorry, I, I I don't actually read some of these smaller items. Oh, okay. They're talking about remediation projects that also promote environmentally sustainable practices, you say. Oh, to so oh, so that they can progress from provisional to annual license status. No. Okay, well okay, well um, you know, don't know really what to say about that. I suppose people may not be really happy about that. Um, there, there have been some grants that uh, programs out there that are looking to remediate some of these places where they've had illegal grows going you know, right. um, and you know damage the environment, and to re- remediate those sites and, and stealing all the water as well. Oh yeah, oh there, and, you know, there's like yeah, it's crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, for me, like I said, I. I I kind of believe that there's, there's there's medical reasons for this. I mean, I know my vet has given me some uh, drops for the dogs to keep them qu- calmer and things of that sort, uh, and, and and that seems that seems to work, even though they say that's not quite marijuana or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you know, I, I I I guess I have a problem with government throwing out money to stuff when they got. 10 million, not 10 million, but thousands of uh, illegal growers and taking all the water that, that farmers need and everything else. And, and I don't know, I, I, I want to see people in government stick up for the for how to spend their, how, how are we spending our money? Who's watching that? I, I, I don't know. I just know every year they, they find all these illegal things and we're spending thousands, tens of thousands or millions of dollars and it never gets fixed. I, I Oh yeah, it, there's so much going on. Uh, you know, there's a big story here uh, today in California. They had a, a whole bunch of fake students applying for student loans. So much so that, like, and, and so many of the there's like classes are filled with fake people that don't exist now. So one <laughs> one uh, one college uh, community college instructor said that she could figure out she only had five actual students out of 42 the others were bots 
that oh. signed up for you know to try and do some uh, financial aid scam. So well, it's just like it's just like years it's, ago yeah, when, it's crazy. when when the U.S. gave out was it half a billion dollars to this company called Solyndra? Remember that? And they were going to do all this solar stuff and you know shovel ready stuff. And the next thing you know, they shut down and went bankrupt. But we never got the half a billion dollars back. You know, uh, yeah, because unusually, unfortunately, you can't because they spend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend it on cars and planes and trains and all of that. Well, yeah, Chris, we're coming up to our it. we're coming up to our commercial break. I, I I wish you can stay on longer, and maybe we'll have to set a time up where you can do a whole show with us, and really we can go into depth on a lot of these things a lot more. So appreciate it. I'm glad you had a a, a safe move. I know it was a hard move. <laughs> little things that you went through, but. Uh, I, I hope you'll settle down this week and uh, have a good glass of wine and relax. And uh, we'll see you next week. For our listeners, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com. Be a subscriber. And if you want, be a, be a sponsor. It's a great way to get water news in California and other places every single day delivered to you on your PC. Uh, it's great. It updates us every every single day. It's like my little water Bible, so I appreciate that. So, Chris, thank you again for for joining us, and we'll certainly talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back with an interesting topic about climate and beer. See what, how that affects it. So stick around for the second half. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy to understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real life hands-on training leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician. Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. 
So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. K-C-A-A. Oh, welcome back to the second half of the show. I uh, appreciate everybody staying with us. Uh, today's the show I'm going to dedicate it to my other co-host, Chris Davies, who likes beer. And uh, I ran into Travis Loop, who's from North Carolina. He is also the president of Loop Communications. And he interviewed somebody from a beer company and talking about uh, how climate change will affect the beer in the future. So want to hear this interesting uh, conversation. So uh, let's uh, turn it over to Travis. Very excited to have an episode focused on beer, one of my absolute favorite topics, joined by Katie Wallace from New Belgium Brewing, where she is the Director of Social and Environmental Impact. Katie, thanks for coming back on the podcast. You're one of my early guests. It's so good to see you again, Travis. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a lot of stuff to talk about around, you know, the around climate change and maybe what climate change would taste like when it comes to beer. Um, so you all uh, were kind enough to send me uh, this fat tire, fat tire version, torched earth, um, and I'll set to put on my glasses. I'm going to read the description here, and you can tell me more about it. So it says we brewed the future of beer in a looming climate crisis with smoky notes from wildfire tainted water supply, drought resistant grains like buckwheat and millet, uh, and bittering essence of readily available dandelion. This might be what we have to look forward to. So I'm going to pour this here and taste it. Um, maybe you can just start explaining uh, how you guys came up with the idea for this. Sure. Uh, well, we, f- for many years, New Belgium has been uh, keeping an eye on climate change. We were the first to ever commission a carbon footprint study for beer and, um, and have been committed to reducing our impact for quite a while. And, and as a part of that, we also review annually the risks to our supply chain. Um, so we see climate change as a big business threat. And uh, we, we do we glance at that annually just to understand what we're looking at, and what we might need to plan around as climate change progresses. And, um, you know, we have had things like barley sprouting on the field and being rendered useless for, for brewing uh, because it's too warm and wet at the end of harvest season. We've had droughts, um, smoke taint and um, and issues even like hurricanes decimating fruit crops. And we use uh, fruit for some of our beers and we've had some pretty close calls with that. So every year we we check in on uh, the threats to our supply chain and the, the instances are just growing in frequency and, and, and severity. So we're quite concerned about what that means for the future of beer. So uh, for example, just last week, we got a quality report from our barley crop for 2021. And with the unprecedented and lasting heat waves, uh, we actually are going to see a reduced quality of barley um, and potentially reduced availability of barley for brewing um, mm. through this harvest season. Uh, we have... Um, we had the largest wildfire in Colorado's history right here in our watershed along the Poudre River. This is actually a sample of the water um, that came from the river last week with the sediment and runoff. 
Um, and so we're not, our utility is actually not able to pull the, the water from that river. So we are um, maximizing the use of our contingency source as well right now. Um, so hops last year in the wildfire um, were damaged because that delicate flower um, had too much smoke taint from the, the fires of the Northwest. Mm. Um, so we're just starting to see some of these things that have been predicted for quite a while, but they're coming to fruition and, um, and causing quite a bit of concern. And, and I think to many of us, if we don't see it, it's hard to believe it. And we felt that through beer, we had the opportunity to just kind of um, you know, emulate what is expected to happen as these events grow more severe and frequent um, as climate change worsens. And we wanted to you know, give, something, give people something they could touch and feel that would um, give a taste of what climate change would be like if, if we don't tend to it quickly and aggressively. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's been all this drought that's happened. California was hit hard a bunch of years ago. They're being hit hard again. The whole Colorado River Basin is in a bad way. Just shortages declared for the first time ever that's going to result in cutbacks down in those those other states. So uh, definitely feeling the stress. So, um, yeah, the, the the fat tire torched earth. Um, I didn't expect this to taste good, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try it now. Uh, that wasn't the intent; was to make a good tasting beer. No, right? this is, yeah, this is to send a it's lesson. It's a strange thing to like ask our yeah. brewers. Can you please make the beer that's supposed to be bad of the future? Yeah. So there's a color, a little brownish there. Interesting. Yeah, it's not the best beer. <laughs> um, How about that aftertaste? That's the thing. That yeah, that's me. lingering. Totally. I'm going to, I'm, I have not tasted a beer like this, of course. So I'm like struggling to find the words to explain what it tastes like, but you definitely have, it's kind of off in every way, right? Um, yeah. The, the grains that you all used uh, to make it are not typical, right? Buckwheat and millet. That's not happening. Dandelion um, and the starchiness that, that definitely jumps out too. Um mm -hmm. And buckwheat, I, I should say, like buckwheat and millet, they can they can make really interesting drinks. It's just not okay. going to be the fat tire and the ones that you're used to aren't made with buckwheat and millet, you know. And and so, um, okay. you know, barley barley would be a tough one to preserve, especially as um, mm. other crops push north. I, I've seen tons of media coverage and social media churn on this beer, you know, got lots of great attention. Um, obviously that's what you all were going for. How would you, how yeah. would you say that, how would you say the reaction has gone? Yeah. Um, it's, it's taken off. I think, um, recently someone kind of, um, asked if this was just a PR stunt and we're like, <laughs> yes, it is a PR stunt. <laughs> we are hoping to, uh, to gain more attention, uh, around the impacts of climate change. And of course, beer is the least of our worries, but uh, because that's something that we have to play with and help demonstrate um, the consequences of inaction through, then um, we for sure meant for it to be a PR stunt that draws attention to the need to address climate action. Um, and, you know, behind the scenes, you know, it's worth saying that it's not only a PR stunt. You know, mm -hmm. we are committed to science-based targets initiative. We are, we launched the first carbon neutral certified beer. You know, there's, we, we fund barley breeding to, to improve the resiliency of barley. And, you know, so there's, there's a number of things that we do um, that are on a deeper action um, from a, you know, that are driving action and not just a PR stunt, but this is something we could add to the mix of, of our projects that helps to increase awareness. 
Yeah. Uh, you told me I did something wrong, though, and I put this in the fridge before trying it. And you said that it was meant to drink warm. Could you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's possible that you'd be drinking warm beer in the future, right? Because um, we've seen power outages through extreme heat waves and through extreme uh, bouts of cold throughout the winter. Um, we've also, um, you're seeing concerns of hydropower failing as the droughts continue. And, and as you mentioned, there are uh, restrictions on the Colorado River and, and the uh, lower basin. You're going to see that affecting things like the Hoover Dam and, um, and other energy sources. So energy is, is um, not going to be readily available with the number of climate disasters that are impending if we don't take action now. Hmm. Yeah. And then I noticed you all had an interesting price point. This wasn't meant for like big distribution. I think you just had it at like your two breweries and maybe someplace else or an event or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about, about the pricing you put on it? Well, we, yes, we didn't brew a lot of this beer. We don't want to brew a lot of a beer that is bad and that no one wants to drink when we can, you know, <laughs> Make, use the same resources to make perfectly good beer, but we just wanted to, you know, make a statement with it and have some people be able to try it. But yes, I think um, something we've talked about in the past is that we expect a six pack could cost as much as a hundred dollars in the future. Um, and I don't know about you, but that means I wouldn't be buying beer at a hundred dollars a six pack. Um, and and that is um, due to the number of um, risks there are to our water sources, to our supply chains in general, and to the distribution and cooling of the beer um, due to um, disruptions in energy delivery. So yes, we think that uh, if, if a number of those uh, disasters coincided, uh, you'd be looking at shortages in barley supplies, um, higher expense for energy and fuel, and potentially um, an, an inability to access uh, primary water sources. And that would all of those things would increase the, the price of, of the beer. Yeah. Man, I thought like the, the $20 four packs was starting to get up there for me, you know, and, and now it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. It's, it's funny. Like I, I don't want to waste beer, right? Beer's a, a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful gift, but I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to finish this one all the way here. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, that's kind of like the problem, right? This is like the worst case scenario beer that it could is. be out there. Um, but then I wanted to bring in another one of the the beers that you all sent me, and that's your you know your classic, iconic fat tire, um, and it is the world's first carbon neutral certified beer. So this is like, hey, this is the direction we need to go to avoid having torched earth. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah. Could you, could you talk about this? I'm going to open one of these just to kind of, to get the better taste going here, but what, what was the idea and how'd you get to this status for this beer? Yeah. Thanks Travis. Um, it's actually, um, the first carbon neutral certified beer in North America. Okay. There are a, a few other carbon neutral certified beers across the world. Um, there are other countries, um, that, unlike the United States, have um, federal carbon neutral certification standards. And, um, and I hope that the U.S. can get there one day because it really helps, helps to unlock a lot of market potential. Um, but, uh, but we were able to learn from, from some of our friends across the globe on how they got there and, um, and then be able to launch the first carbon neutral certified beer in, in North America. Um, we, we came to this conclusion for a few reasons. Um, one, we, while we've been reducing our emissions over time. We are just a small company and we can't uh, change our entire supply chains and the systems on which we depend upon um, to make and deliver our beer. 
And so um, we just know that we need to take action faster as we're seeing the impacts of climate change accelerate faster than anyone expected. We felt the need to accelerate our um, our action on climate. And so uh, the investment of carbon offsets um, helps us to uh, offset some of the emissions that we're not able to directly deal with at this time. And, um, and I, and I think that there is quite a bit of debate around the efficacy of, of carbon offsets and, and in some cases, the integrity of them. So that could be an entire episode on its <laughs> own. Um, I've learned far more about that than I ever knew possible um, in the last few years. But uh, you know, when it's tough when you're talking about how much carbon you sequester and hold into the soil through a forest or through agriculture, et cetera. Um, it's really tough to measure that acre by acre or even square foot by square foot as it varies. Um, and so, um, so there's a, you know, one of the things we've been a little bit wary of offsets in the past, but uh, one of the things that actually made them more viable and exciting for us was the, the advent of the satellite technology, the drone technology and um, various um, you know, digital advancements that help us to ensure that the carbon is actually being sequestered into the soil. So those are the types of programs that we support, um, high standards of verification, that they're really um, demonstrating that these are additional sequestration, it it provides an additional sequestration of CO2 um, and and has a meaningful impact. All of our offset projects um, meet the PAS 2060 guidelines, they're global guidelines for the quality of of offsets. but also the ones we invest in, our hope is, is that they have a long-term uh, transformative benefit. Um, for example, Indigo Agriculture just launched um, last year an agricultural-based carbon offset uh, that is helping to fund growers to transition to regenerative farming practices. Um, and they have they verify that through satellite technology and soil sampling and and a number of other assurances. Um, but it is the very first agricultural offset that was uh, approved through the PAS 2060 um, guidelines. And so we're very excited about um, being able to fund this opportunity that helps to uh, drive revenue to rural economies and help our barley growers um, get a little cash to make that transition in their growing practices towards a more um, resilient and um, climate-friendly farming. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'll say that definitely that the, the, the carbon neutral fat tire here tastes better than the torched earth, significantly better. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> well, that's let's hope out. we can keep the fat tire flowing. And, um, and, you know, I think, I think that uh, one of the important things to say on this, another reason why we did that is because there's a lot of consumer demand for it right now. And so mm. um, we actually did some research um, through Nielsen and, and it showed that um, more than we looked at, beer drinkers and how important it was to them that a beer was certified carbon neutral. Um, And about 74% of them, uh, before even hearing the definition of carbon neutral certification, thought it was important. And once they heard the definition of carbon neutral certification, 86% of them um, thought it was important. So if we really look at like, you know, satisfying the consumer and looking at the long, the lasting demand, um, there really is a strong demand uh, for, for that from consumers, which actually um, helped us to tap into the marketing budget for some of the cost of our offsets mm. and carbon neutral certification, which, you know, just it's wonderful when you can find those other business synergies to do the right thing, but it's also what the customers want. And, um, and I think, you know, you've been doing this work for a long time. And um, it's kind of a shock to look at numbers like that because just it wasn't too long ago that 
that wasn't as high of a priority for consumers, but I think people are experiencing the impacts of climate change now through these extreme events and, and through some of the science that's getting through to the, to the public. And so, um, so there, you know, I think that that's worth mentioning if you have other business leaders that are on listening to the, to the podcast and really knowing that there's a, a strong consumer demand for this type, this level of action. Uh, I, I love the consumer demand helping to drive things. So while the torched earth was a bit of a PR stunt, this this carbon neutral was like the real deal here, the, the actions you're taking. I was reading on your website that you all are, are aiming to kind of have all your beers be carbon neutral by 2030. You know, definitely ambitious, yes. but awesome. Um, what are the big steps you're going to have to take to get to that? I mean, you're going to have to figure out some of that along the way, I guess. But um, yeah, what's the path ahead? Well, it's probably worth articulating that through our certification, um, it's not just enough to only buy offsets uh, in, in perpetuity. Uh, we actually need to make a measurable reduction on our actual absolute emissions over time. So, um, so we are both committed to all of our beers being carbon neutral certified by 2030, but we're also committed to the science-based targets initiative um, of making drastic reductions in our absolute emissions um, to limit warming to that 1.5 degree Celsius. And so um, with science-based targets that we're you know, publicly committed to, we have to reduce our operational uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 55% from 2019 to 2030. Um, so over time, we'll be reducing our reliance on offsets and, um, and, and uh, investing in more renewable energy on site, more, uh, more, community renewable energy, community solar fields, et cetera. Um, we are looking at uh, solutions again for barley farming and um, fund it. we fund uh, barley breeding research so that we can uh, move towards barley varieties that are less impactful on the climate and also uh, preserve soil health and increase the resilience of barley uh, throughout uh, increases in climate change. Um, and uh, trying to also drive more recycled content. We helped to found the Glass Recycling Coalition, and that can help to drastically reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, hmm. We, uh, in addition to that, I think, you know, all of our carbon offsets, like we mentioned, we're hopeful that they'll help us to transition overall. We also, for example, some of the offsets we buy help um, to accelerate HFC phase out for refrigerants, and hmm. which is, is one of our sources of emissions because beer is refrigerated and, uh, Project Drawdown identifies refrigerant um, transition HFC phase out as the number one opportunity to reduce emissions across the world. So our hands are in all the pots <laughs> of, of the areas that um, beer specifically contributes to. And we're hopeful that uh, through our own operational investments and also our supply chain um, initiatives that we can help to um, take a transformative approach towards uh, the entire supply chain for beer over time. Um, and I, I will say to the, you know, um, we are a medium sized company and, um, we only have a medium sized impact. And if just a handful of companies are really taking this seriously, there is no way that we will address climate change at, at the pace that is required to avoid catastrophic impacts. And so, uh, we are very active in policy advocacy. Um, we are on um, the advisory council for America is all in. Um, we support uh, uh, carbon pricing mechanisms and um, and just an overall look at how our local, state, and federal government can help to coordinate uh, collective action. 
Currently today, um, of the, the top 500 companies across the world, only 30% of them have a meaningful climate plan. And, um, and we're just not going to get there with some, without some level of broader coordination. And, um, and so one of the reasons we get really involved in policy advocacy is, is uh, because that can help us more efficiently drive towards climate resilience. And um, we've done this many times throughout our history in the United States as we face world wars, uh, the Great Depression, uh, droughts and dust bowls. We actually uh, instituted as a nation um, incentives like agricultural subsidies, subsidies, even oil and gas subsidies, um, because at the time that was the right mechanism to help uh, protect our shared prosperity. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, a hundred years later, things are much different. Our circumstances are different, and um, incentivizing oil and gas extraction might not be the right solution to help protect our shared prosperity. So we are big fans of um, of companies doing much more and also a federal action to help coordinate um, and hold everyone accountable to take action so that we can protect our shared resilience and prosperity for a long time to come. It is a very American thing for us to do. Um, and so, for example, um, we, we lobbied our city council here to um, advance our grid to 100% renewable electricity. They have committed to that by 2030. So that's going to make um, it more efficient for all of us to move in that direction. And we're really hopeful that some of the investments coming through the stimulus bills and reconciliation plans um, will will actually, our budget reconciliation will actually help to um, bring the United States into the future So that, um, as a leader uh, in a uh, in a global uh, economy that is really challenged by climate change. And so um, we'd like to, to keep the U.S. in that leadership spot. And so we, we advocate quite heavily for um, that level of coordination. We just launched our carbon neutral toolkit for brewers, um, where we put our you know, 30 years of, of knowledge into um, a carbon neutral journey um, into a document. And uh, you can check that out at drinksustainably.com. And, uh, and also learn a little bit more about our carbon neutral work in general. But our hope is with this toolkit, we can just help uh, the entire industry accelerate our action on climate and help to protect good beer for many generations to come. Well, I wanted to kind of pivot a little bit because the biggest ingredient in beer is water. Um, and water is where these climate impacts are almost really hitting first, if you will, right? Droughts and storms Mm -hmm. and whatever it might be. Um, And I just, I talked to you all about water the first time we had a, had a conversation together. And I just wanted to kind of hear what's going on, on the, the water side of things, you know, what you guys are trying to do or, or what you see the beer industry trying to do for like the next leap forward on water stewardship. Sure. Um, So, so of course, water efficiency measures throughout the brewery are critical. Um, it's much harder for craft beer when you have a lot of hops and mm-hmm. um, different ingredients. You know, there's just a lot of water as a process, uh, aid, you know, if you will, um, throughout uh, delivering and integrating all the many ingredients and the things that craft beer lovers enjoy, you know, all, all that flavor. Yeah. And so, um, so it's tougher to make, um, it, you know, oftentimes requires more water for those, but, um, which but is, we have which a is of- interesting. It's interesting that the beer that tastes less, just like water requires more water to get more flavor yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's definitely advancements that, that we have made and that can be made. And so we, there's a fair amount of um, re- process water reuse throughout our brewery. So uh, we actually capture 
the water um, from the internal rinse of our bottles when it's cleaning when you're cleaning out brand new bottles in case there's a speck of dust um, you rinse it out the inside of the bottle we capture that um, here in New Belgium and we um, use that then for the external rinse to wash the bottle off once it's been capped um, it's pretty much clean at that point still and so it's, it's perfect for that dual use um, that saves us um, close to two million gallons of water a year um, on our front lawn we installed artificial turf because it's high traffic and, um, and that saves us uh, about 350,000 gallons of water a year. It was, um, we moved to dry lubricant on our bottling lines. And so that saves uh, about one and a half millions of gallons, one and a half million gallons of water a year. And um, so there are lots of things that you can do inside the brewery to drive efficiency. Even with um, hoppier beers, uh, there are process improvements you can make um, putting in new equipment that can help to um, minimize the water loss throughout that. Um, um, you know, I think that we also uh, do a fair amount of investing in our local watershed to help to protect the uh, viability of, of our water supplies. Um, I would encourage any brewer to check out World Resource Institute's aqueduct tool and just get an assessment of your water risk. It will actually let you know, is there a supply issue through drought uh, that will worsen throughout climate change? Uh, they'll let you know, is there a water quality issue like algal blooms that we're looking at in some areas, right, that um, where there's less water flow and higher temperatures. Um, and they'll also tell you, you know, it, is there some type of political issue uh, mm -hmm. that could put your water source at risk? So it's a great report um, that can get very specific to your watershed. And, um, and just kind of identifying the water risk to begin with is really important and then developing the right strategy for that area. Um, I think that there's some really interesting work um, for water storage happening in the Colorado area um, where they're actually um, treating water and putting it back in a reservoir, letting it go through the natural cycle to become clean again, and then um, putting it back into the water system. That already happens in um, a few cities south of us and throughout multiple cities in the United States. Um, and so, so definitely, you know, some solutions on better managing water in general. But um, as a part of protecting water, we have to address climate change because, like you said, there's so many events uh, that are water related, whether it's a, a giant storm, flooding, uh, drought, etc., um, that are causing, that are wreaking this havoc that all of us will have to contend with. And um, and the warming temperatures again causing water pollution and algal blooms that actually are poisonous. And so, um, so there's, there's definitely a number of issues that are water related and climate related. And one of the best things we can do to preserve our water supplies, in addition to driving efficiency, is going to be addressing climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And even like you mentioned, wildfires then polluting water <laughs> supplies and rivers yeah. and everything like that. So mm -hmm. incredible. Well, uh, Katie, it was awesome to catch up with you again. I appreciate you guys uh, shipping me some beer. It's always an awesome uh, box to get on your doorstep. Um, I'm glad I got to taste the uh, the torched earth. I know I heard from a lot of my friends and colleagues, like, you got to tell me what that tastes like. Um and so I can report back now that it does not taste good. The future, if we, uh, the future of beer with climate change is not good. So, got to take action. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Travis. Thanks for all you're doing and, and your listeners are doing to learn more about these issues and spread the word. And um, I think together with some collective action, uh, we have a fighting chance. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Look forward to sharing beers in person one of these days when, when we know. can get back to that too. It, it, hopefully, it's coming. All right. Good deal. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Travis. Well, all you beer drinkers better start uh, stocking up on beer if it's going to go to $100 a six-pack. And uh, 
I don't know. That's going to get real, real expensive. Anyway, thanks for joining us.